What do bioscience and big data have to do with Iowa? More than you probably think. Iowa invites you to discover career opportunities in today's most cutting-edge industries. From startups to establishments, businesses across the state are pairing new technology with daring ideas, investing in bold visionaries, supporting driven doers, establishing the workforce of tomorrow today. This is Iowa. Don't limit your dream job to the imagination. Make it happen here. Explore Iowa for yourself at thisisiowa.com. It's Thursday, the 9th of January, 2020. I'm Helen Joyce, The Economist's finance editor. Welcome to Editor's Picks, where you can hear three of the defining stories from the paper this week. They're read aloud so you can listen on the go. Our cover this week looks at the West's obsession with home ownership and the consequences of the warped housing policies that promote owner occupation over renting. Dysfunctional housing markets have undermined public faith in capitalism. It is time to build a new housing market that works. Next, Putin's plan for constitutional change looks like a long-term power grab. For believers in democracy everywhere, the only comfort is that even rulers for life don't live forever. And finally, Harry, Meghan and Marx. Why our Badgett columnist thinks Brand Sussex is a threat to the monarchy. The stories you're about to hear are just a sample of what's on offer in the paper. With a subscription, you can read or listen to all of what we do, so please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. First up, the West's obsession with home ownership undermines growth, fairness and public faith in capitalism. Economies can suffer both sudden crashes and chronic diseases. Housing markets in the rich world have caused both types of problem. A trillion dollars of dud mortgages blew up the financial system in 2007-8. But just as pernicious is the creeping dysfunction that housing has created over decades. Vibrant cities without space to grow. Ageing homeowners sitting in half-empty homes who are keen to protect their view. And a generation of young people who cannot easily afford to rent or buy and think capitalism has let them down. As our special report this week explains, much of the blame lies with warped housing policies that date back to the Second World War and which are intertwined with an infatuation with home ownership. They have caused one of the rich world's most serious and longest-running economic failures. A fresh architecture is urgently needed. At the root of that failure is a lack of building, especially near the thriving cities in which jobs are plentiful. From Sydney to Sydenham, fiddly regulations protect an elite of existing homeowners and prevent developers from building the skyscrapers and flats that the modern economy demands. The resulting high rents and house prices make it hard for workers to move to where the most productive jobs are and have slowed growth. Overall, housing costs in America absorb 11% of GDP, up from 8% in the 1970s. If just three big cities, New York, San Francisco and San Jose, relaxed planning rules, America's GDP could be 4% higher. That is an enormous prize. As well as being merely inefficient, housing markets are deeply unfair. Over a period of decades, falling interest rates have compounded inadequate supply and led to a surge in prices. 
In America, the frenzy is concentrated in thriving cities. In other rich countries, average national prices have soared, especially in English-speaking countries where punting on property is a national sport. The financial crisis did not kill off the trend. In Britain, inflation-adjusted house prices are roughly equal to their pre-crisis peak, while real wages are no higher. In Australia, despite recent falls, prices remain 20% higher than in 2008. In Canada, they are up by half. The soaring cost of housing has created gaping inequalities and inflamed both generational and geographical divides. In 1990, a generation of baby boomers, with a median age of 35, owned a third of America's real estate by value. In 2019, a similarly sized cohort of millennials, aged 31, owned just 4%. Young people's view that housing is out of reach, unless you have rich parents, helps explain their drift towards millennial socialism. And homeowners of all ages who are trapped in declining places resent the windfall housing gains enjoyed in and around successful cities. In Britain, areas with stagnant housing markets were more likely to vote for Brexit in 2016, even after accounting for differences in income and demography. You might think fear and envy about housing is part of the human condition. In fact, the property pathology has its roots in a shift in public policy in the 1950s towards promoting home ownership. Since then, governments have used subsidies, tax breaks and sales of public housing to encourage owner occupation over renting. Politicians on the right have seen home ownership as a way to win votes by encouraging responsible citizenship. Those on the left see housing as a conduit for redistribution and for nudging poorer households to build wealth. These arguments are overstated. It is hard to show whether property ownership makes better citizens. If you ignore leverage, it is usually better to own shares than to own homes. And the cult of owner-occupation has huge costs. Those who own homes often become NIMBYs, who resist development in an effort to protect their investments. Data crunching by The Economist suggests that the number of new houses constructed per person in the rich world has fallen by half since the 1960s. Because supply is constrained and the system is skewed towards ownership, most people feel they risk being left behind if they rent. As a result, politicians focus on subsidising marginal buyers, as Britain has done in recent years. That channels cash to the middle classes and further boosts prices. And it fuels the build-up of mortgage debt that makes crises more likely. It does not have to be this way. Not everywhere is afflicted with every part of the housing curse. Tokyo has no property shortage. Between 2013 and 2017, it put up 728,000 dwellings, more than England did without destroying quality of life. The number of rough sleepers has dropped by 80% in the past 20 years. Switzerland gives local governments fiscal incentives to allow housing development, one reason why there is almost twice as much home building per person as in America. New Zealand recouped some of homeowners' windfall gains through land and property taxes based on valuations that are frequently updated. Most important... In a few places, the rate of home ownership is low 
and no one bats an eyelid. It is just 50% in Germany, which has a rental sector that encourages long-term tenancies and provides clear and enforceable rights for renters. With ample supply and few tax breaks or subsidies for owner-occupiers, home ownership is far less alluring and the political clout of NIMBYs is muted. Despite strong recent growth in some cities, Germany's real house prices are, on average, no higher than they were in 1980. Is it possible to escape the home ownership fetish? Few governments today can ignore the anger over housing shortages and intergenerational unfairness. Some have responded with bad ideas like rent controls or even more mortgage subsidies. Yet there has been some progress. America's capped its tax break for mortgage interest payments. Britain has banned murky upfront fees from rental contracts and curbed risky mortgage lending. A fledgling YIMBY, yes in my backyard movement, has sprung up in many successful cities to promote construction. Those, like this newspaper, who want popular support for free markets to endure, should hope that such movements succeed. Far from shoring up capitalism, housing policies have made the system unsafe, inefficient and unfair. Time to tear down this rotten edifice and build a new housing market that works. Capital One has a fresh take on banking. Now you can open a new savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Banking with Capital One means five times the savings toward your dream honeymoon, or five times the savings toward your family's ultimate vacation, even five times the savings toward just feeling good about saving. It's time to make your savings goals come true. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. Next. Vladimir Putin is preparing to rule forever. What is Vladimir Putin playing at? On January 15th, Russia's president took Kremlin watchers by surprise. In his State of the Union speech, he announced a radical overhaul of the Russian constitution and a referendum on its proposed, still very unclear, terms. This bombshell was immediately followed by another, the Prime Minister, Dmitry Medvedev, resigned along with the entire cabinet. As The Economist went to press, the reasons for Mr Medvedev's ejection and replacement by an obscure technocrat remained a riddle wrapped in a mystery. To understand what might be going on, start with a simple fact. In the past twenty years, Mr Putin's regime has killed too many people and misappropriated too many billions to make it plausible that he would ever voluntarily give up effective power. Under the current constitution, he cannot run again for president when his term expires in 2024, since no one is allowed more than two consecutive terms. So everyone has always assumed that one way or another he would game the rules to remain top dog. He already has form on this. His first two terms as president ran from 2000 to 2008. Term limited out for the first time, he became prime minister for four years, during which time Mr. Medvedev served as a distinctly neutered president. In 2012, Mr. Putin was back in the suddenly re-empowered presidency and was re-elected to a second term in 2018. 
The only enigma has ever been what job he would jump to in 2024. We still do not know. One option, clearly, is for Mr Putin to return to being Prime Minister. An argument for this happening is his statement that the new arrangements he is seeking will make the post more important, with full powers to appoint the Cabinet, subject to confirmation by Parliament, which Mr Putin's loyal United Russia party controls, rather than letting the President pick them. Another, and more likely option is that Mr Putin will seek to maintain his hold on power by continuing to head a vaguely defined but powerful body called the State Council, which, funnily enough, Mr Putin said in his speech should be given more powers under the rejig. In reality, the details do not much matter. Russia is a dictatorship masquerading as a democracy. Mr Putin's electoral successes owe much to years of economic growth, now brought to an end by corruption, uncompetitiveness, the end of the oil boom, and Western sanctions following the annexation of Crimea in 2014, and the popularity of his reassertion of Soviet-era imperium. But they owe perhaps even more to state control of television, the barring of popular opposition candidates, the co-opting of tame opposition parties, and the arrests and intimidation dished out to the less tame ones, the murder of political opponents is no way to foster genuine competition for power. Whether Mr Putin is President, Prime Minister, Head of the State Council, or Honorary Chairman of the National Bridge Association, the post through which Deng Xiaoping ruled China for years after stepping down from his more prestigious offices, makes a lot less difference than it would in a real democracy. No one knows what the final shape of the new constitution will be, Mr Putin may decide, as many a despot has done before him, that a new constitution means resetting the existing term limits. Or, as Xi Jinping did in China in 2018, he could simply scrap term limits altogether. He says he does not want to do this. Mr Xi did not even bother with a referendum, pushing the change that will allow him to rule indefinitely through the supine National People's Congress with 2,959 votes, out of 2,964. Another model is offered by Kazakhstan, where Nursultan Nazarbayev, who became his independent country's first president in 1990, stepped down last year, only to stay on as leader of the ruling party and holder of the title Leader of the Nation. America would once have spoken out against such rule-twisting. Under Donald Trump, it does not. The American president makes little secret of his admiration for strongmen. Nor is the EU likely to do more than mutter as Mr Putin glues himself to the throne. It is spooked by a rising China and dependent on Russia for its gas supplies. The world's autocrats will watch events in Moscow with interest to see if Mr Putin can offer them useful tips for extending their own rule. For Democrats everywhere, the only comfort is that even rulers for life don't live forever. And finally, the Sussexes are embracing capitalism in its rawest, most modern form. Marx predicted that capitalism would destroy every remnant of feudalism. It would tear asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his natural superiors, in the words of the Communist Manifesto. It would drown ecstasies of religious fervour and chivalric enthusiasm in the icy water of egotistical calculation. 
and it would subject every national institution to the revolutionary logic of the global market. So far, the British monarchy, one of the last vestiges of the country's feudal system, has proved a splendid refutation of Marxism. The crown has survived both the high noon of Victorian capitalism and the revival of market orthodoxy after 1979. In The English Constitution, Walter Badgett explained why, far from undermining capitalism, the monarchy, in its British form, reinforced it, acting as glue in a society divided into antagonistic classes and distracting the masses from the real sources of power. It injected pageantry, romance, mystery and drama into the lives of British people, mitigating the dreary business of being a cog in the wheels of capitalism. But the Duke and Duchess of Sussex may be about to prove Marx right. They represent the most profound danger to the monarchy's settlement with modernity since Badgett wielded his pen. Previous threats have been mere individuals, Edward VIII, Princess Diana, and most recently Prince Andrew. The current one is an entire economic system. In stepping down as senior royals while pronouncing that they value the freedom to make a professional income, the Duke and Duchess threaten to unleash the spirit of capitalism on the very core of the monarchy. This is not the first time the Windsors have experimented with capitalism. Princess Diana referred to the royal family as the firm because it was so businesslike in its approach to monarchy. Prince Charles sells over £200 million, that's $260 million a year worth, of organic food under his duchy brand. But until now, the firm has treated capitalism as a servant of feudalism. Prince Charles gives the profits from his duchy brand to charity and misses no opportunity to preach the superior values of the old world to this venal age, denouncing intensive farming methods and modern architecture while telling off business people for putting profit before principle. The Sussexes are doing something new. They are embracing capitalism in its rawest, most modern form, global rather than national, virtual rather than solid, driven by its ineluctable logic constantly to produce new fads and fashions. This type of capitalism is the inverse of feudalism. In a feudal society, you are bound to your followers by mutual bonds of obligation. In 21st century capitalism, you accumulate followers in order to monetize them. In a feudal society, you are bound to plots of land. Harry is the Duke of Sussex, while his elder brother is the Duke of Cambridge. In a 21st century capitalist society, you are propelled around the world in pursuit of the latest marketing opportunity. It is only fitting that the principal agent of the current debacle, Meghan Markle, is the product of an entertainment business that has done more than any other industry to fulfil Marx's prediction that all that is sacred would be profaned and all that is solid would melt into air. The Sussexes are determined to turn themselves into a global brand. Their first move, after they announced that they were stepping down from many of their royal duties, was to unveil the name of their brand, Sussex Royal, which sounds a bit like a potato, but will soon start to glitter with Hollywood stardust. They started working on their new website in September, according to coding logs, and trademarked the Sussex Royal logo for use on hundreds of items ranging from socks to counselling services in December. 
They have hired a branding agency called Article, whose clients include the children's channel Nickelodeon, the fashion house Diane von Furstenberg, and the Toronto Maple Leafs ice hockey team. They are exploring the possibilities of forging a relationship with Disney, an entertainment company that knows a thing or two about monetizing princes and princesses. Various branding experts have pronounced that Harry and Meghan have a ready-made brand that could earn them as much as £500 million in their first year. Influencer Marketing Hub, a website, points out that with 10 million Instagram followers, they could expect $34,000 for a sponsored post. Semrush, a Boston-based marketing analytics firm, says that Ms. Markle's search volume is nearly three times Beyoncé's. Already, Harry and Meghan are rewriting the rules of royalty so that they can behave as celebrities rather than as public servants. They are planning to abandon the system of royal reporting, whereby royals put up with journalists chosen by the papers, who share their material with the rest of the press. Harry and Meghan intend to back out of that, in favour of choosing their preferred media toadies, though since it appears that they want to continue to receive money from Prince Charles, the elder generation has a certain amount of leverage. Negotiations are underway. The palace held a crisis summit on January 13th to try to work out a peace treaty between the Crown and the Sussexes. Ms Markle, who is in Canada, did not attend, leaving Harry to defend the Sussexes' corner against his grandmother, father and brother. Branding experts purr that Harry and Meghan have an interest in preserving the integrity of their brand, but the logic of 21st century capitalism is against a peaceful settlement. They will need more than Prince Harry's inheritance, which is estimated at £20 million to £30 million, to keep up with the global super-rich. Ensuring that their brand remains hot and providing their distribution channels with content will require them to extract more and more value from the monarchy, perhaps including revelations about racism and sexism at the heart of the royal family. The daylight that Walter Badgett said should not be let in upon the magic of monarchy is as nothing to the glare of 21st century capitalism. Thanks for listening to Editor's Picks. To read or listen to the whole of this week's edition, go to economist.com slash radiooffer. I'm Helen Joyce, and in London, this is The Economist. Capital One has a fresh take on banking. Now you can open a new savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Banking with Capital One means five times the savings toward your dream honeymoon, or five times the savings toward your family's ultimate vacation, even five times the savings toward just feeling good about saving. It's time to make your savings goals come true. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC.